These are the trauma healing learnings based on one mom's journal entries recorded in real time from a catastrophic event with her son that you've been listening to in the blink of an eye story. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Hello, dear ones. Today, I have a delightful conversation to share with you as I talk with doctors Vanya Abkarian and Melissa Farmer of Abkarian Labs at Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois. We are going to delve into the intriguing and occasionally controversial world of pain management. Yep, that's right. There are more methods to manage pain and chronic pain than you may think. Let's open our minds and explore the various avenues to soothing bodily distress. Did you know the nonprofit I See That, the Integrative Center for Trauma Healing, Advocacy, and Transformation, is now the Blink of an Eye nonprofit and is a proud sponsor of Blink of an Eye podcast? And Blink of an Eye nonprofit is on social media. You can easily find out more about the Blink of an Eye nonprofit initiatives to support spinal cord injury families in the first 30 days of crisis. You can follow Blink of an Eye on Instagram at Blink of an Eye Nonprofit, and we're on Facebook at the URL facebook.com slash www.blinkofaneye.org. Register now for the Science of Trauma 3-Hour Symposium at http colon slash slash events dot I-C-T-H-A-T dot org. Links to those platforms will be in the show notes. Welcome to Season 3, Trauma Healing Learning 16, Chronic Pain Management with Dr. Vanya Epkarian and Dr. Melissa Farmer. Hello, Blink of an Eye family. In this Trauma Healing Learning, we will hear from not one, but two professionals in the medical sphere focused on trauma healing, Dr. Epkarian and Dr. Farmer, are at the cutting edge of research on the neurobiology of chronic pain. And in this episode, you will learn about their work at Epkarian Labs at Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois, and the insights they have uncovered about chronic pain and the way it can actually change the brain. As Blink of an Eye listeners, the power of trauma on our bodies and psyches and mental health is likely not lost on you. You are aware of its effects on the brain and body, and you are even more knowledgeable after attending the Blink of an Eye Science of Trauma Virtual Symposium. In this trauma healing learning, we will hear of even more ways to manage that scary thing we spend a lot of our lives trying to avoid. Pain. The good news is that there are ways to combat your physical distress. Dr. Farmer trained at one of the few multidisciplinary pain clinics in North America at McGill University in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, and she specializes in mindfulness-based stress reduction and meditation techniques. On the other hand, Dr. Abkarian has made revolutionary strides at his pain and passion lab, which is dedicated to the study of acute and chronic pain 
using function and structural brain imaging. And he has even predicted who will develop chronic pain in the future. It all has to do with brain circuits and function, what we do every day, and how we think. It's no wonder he was featured in the New York Times for his efforts. So, settle in. Take a deep breath and acknowledge your body's nagging aches and pains. Let us soothe them and ease our minds as we walk the path to trauma healing. Together, here we go. I am blessed to introduce you to Dr. Melissa Farmer and Dr. Vanya Apkarium. Both are scientists who research how the brain adapts to chronic pain. We will talk today about the latest science in the field and how it has the power to help millions of people overcome unnecessary suffering so they can live fuller lives. Welcome, welcome, welcome to you both. I have so been looking forward to this conversation because we share a deep interest in solving the problem of chronic pain, often related to trauma or how we think or how our bodies have stored traumatic energy. And I have been looking forward to your insights, and I know many will benefit from this conversation. May we begin with your introducing yourselves and giving a brief background of your occupation, your interest, how you moved into this field. Melissa. Yes, sure. Um, I was trained uh, at university, uh, at the University of McGill uh, in Montreal, where I got my PhD in clinical psychology with a concentration in neuroscience. Um, and uh, McGill was a unique place because it has a very dense concentration of pain experts. Uh, and so I had the privilege of sort of intellectually developing in an environment where basic brilliant scientists uh, and clinicians were collaborating on cases of these, you know, very complicated uh, pain patients. So I saw a really huge variety of uh, chronic pain conditions with sometimes very bewildering symptom uh, complexes, symptom presentations. And that had a really huge impact on me uh, because I, these weren't just cases to me, I was also giving these people psychotherapy. And so I learned about their fears and their dreams and the obstacles that they were encountering uh, during their pain journeys. And I would also see um, behind the suffering who they were which is something that a lot of people with pain are struggling to reclaim, that sort of that lost sense of identity, the, that who, who I used to be is, is so far away from who they are now. Um, and just that experience, uh, I fell in love with the complexity of chronic pain. And that's one of the things that motivated me to work with Dr. Abkarian and do my postdoc with him. So I've worked uh, with him for, what is it? Eight, nine, ten years now, more than that. Uh, and I decided to work with Dr. Karin because not only was his research the absolute best, but he has a passion that I didn't see in a lot of pain researchers, 
where it was almost like an infectious enthusiasm that's still there, sort of like this childish, uh, childlike joy at just discovering new things. Mm. How lovely that you were able to be mentored by such a wonderful person who impacted you in that way through the love of what it was that he was doing. Dr. Upkarian, how about thank for you? you? Yeah, with your background <laughs> yeah, no, and how you, you got I'm into this touched, field. I'm, so, you know, I'm, I'm touched I'm not, as well. And I was not expecting to be in such a, you know, anyways, nice. And thank you, Melissa, for all the nice words you're telling about me. I'm a scientist. I am have, have been and will continue to be totally enchanted about how the brain creates who we are in general. And, uh, you know, my romantic, uh, yes, road is to get more understanding about who we are by understanding the science of who we are, you know. And that's been my drive, my passion for, for all of my uh, scientific research. Um, and... Of course, uh, chronic pain is a condition that's, that remains heavily misunderstood or, or not adequately understood. Chronic pain is a condition for, is one of these conditions where there's a huge amount, a huge societal need for adequate treatment and for which we really don't even have a single new treatment drug that's ever been developed for chronic pain. Instead, you know, fundamentally we use aspirin and morphine, which has been, which have been used for 3,000 years. And, and, you know, my very simple idea is that if we understand the science behind it, then we will be able to at least come up with better ways of managing it, of treating it in general. So yes, I am passionate about our science because I think our science really has the potential of decreasing suffering worldwide, literally. And in a way, we're, we're constantly in my lab discussing how close we are to that. To that, and and you know, it's always one step behind us, or above us, in a way, and yet we're chasing it very, you know, as fast as possible. Um, you know, I'm a neuroscientist. I, I, I mean, and my my work is is goes into details of which neurotransmitter and which synapse and which axon connects to who under what conditions. But all of that doesn't matter. At the end of the day, we really need to understand the the person in that state of being in chronic pain and how we can bring all of that science into practical application. I'm very moved by, um, well, Melissa, your, your words about uh, Dr. Abkarian and, and for you, Vanya, what you mentioned about how getting to really understand and know the patient. I have come to believe as it relates to chronic pain, but also as it relates to the physician-patient interaction and treatment that so much of it comes from the physician taking the time to know something about the patient. And as you mentioned, Melissa, oftentimes what is underlying any kind of disease or injury and pain that is associated or pain that is lingering or pain that is unexplainable has oftentimes yeah. been the the physician, the, the care provider, not taking the time to 
discover what that lost sense of identity um, is like. So I, I thank you both. So I'm, I'm curious, as we're also getting to know a bit about your background and you getting to know a bit about ours, what parts of the Blink of an Eye podcast uh, interested you because you reached out to me? Yes. Um, one, of the, one of the first... So uh, whenever I was looking over different podcasts, uh, just to... I'm always looking for things that help me understand the patient experience. And one of the things that really touched me about your podcast was your narrative, your beautifully emotional and deep narrative about the experience of what it's like to move through this really complex system of care. And it seemed almost natural. You made some gorgeous insights about, you know, how even the the physicians can be traumatized and how they're sort of protecting themselves from, uh, uh, from the experience of treating people with chronic pain. It reminded me a lot of the training that I received at, uh, at uh, the Ellen Edwards pain management unit, where um, the doctor there, doc- the lead doctor, Dr. Shear had said, it's very difficult to be a doctor who treats chronic pain because doctors, we get into this business because we want to help people and we want to see people get better with chronic pain. You don't see that very often. So it takes a certain type of person to be able to keep that hope alive for yourself so that you can keep that hope alive for your patients. And so it, it, in a sense, it has to do with character. One of the things that you touch on is, you know, the, the, the trauma core at the basis of that trauma core is emotional fear learning. And that's exactly what Vanya's science is based on. Mm. How does, how does fear become uh, hardwired in the nervous system and especially the brain? Because at the core of the idea that, you know, we're, that chronic pain is an emotional phenomenon, you know, it, it, at the beginning, if you, even if you, one of the things Vanya always says is um, pain is a primary reinforcer, meaning you don't need to learn anything to be aversive to pain. It just hurts. But whenever you have experiences uh, of physical pain that are overlaid with emotional pain and loss, it creates a really strong learning state that can take years to unravel in the brain. And that's one of the things that Vanya's research shows. Um, in Vanya's research, we call it the maintenance of chronic pain, all the consequences, all the losses. And so in a sense, whenever people are looking to treat chronic pain, you're treating not just the physical sensation, but all of the, the, the emotional unravelings, the, the, uh, the fact that you can't be with people that you love because it hurts, you know, if you have a bad pain day, all of these consequences, how you change the way that you make decisions, how you, how you changes your motivation. It changes so many different things. And Vanya's research is at the core of that. Um, so it, it just seemed like a perfect match. Well, I, um, I, I'm flattered and I feel that it is a perfect match as we let's delve in uh, Vanya to how it is that we can better understand the hard wiring in our central nervous systems with the research that you've been doing. Yeah, I mean, my research is, um, you know, it's not very complicated to understand, although people tend to feel that we 
we write complex papers. But overall, I mean, what what we have done is very simple. We've asked a simple question: if people, you know, have this this pain state, what is it that's changing over time in their system uh, when they are developing chronic pain? And it's it's rather simple. We simply look at their brain activity, brain connectivity, brain circuitry changes over time. And the simple message is very is very straightforward. In, in a sense, very similar injuries across many people. Some people develop chronic pain and others don't. And and one could uh, look at that as a as a almost a time travel of how the brain is changing with it, uh, along those events. Uh, and very simply, what we see is that initially this pain that's uh, centered on your body sensations is somatically defined state of you know uh, of representation in the brain. Over time, it moves away from those areas of the brain, and it moves into your emotional circuitry in your brain. That's very that, so. That's really all we end up seeing. Of course, that then gives us a whole set of things that we have to examine: why and how and where and what are the you know chemicals that are changing with it and all of that. But the fundamental idea is is this moving away from the pain being an external input. A somatic input into becoming an internal, self-defining emotional state. That's the the general concept, and we've been doing this for more than almost 30, 25 years now. I'm getting older and older as I keep talking about these things, but we've done this in multiple types of pain conditions, and repeatedly we see similar patterns. We can now replicate these things in animal models that, in fact, how even mice show the same properties. And, and in a way that, you know, this is not something imagined or psychosomatic condition of, of some, uh, you know, uh, state that uh, the patient has created to themselves. It's part of the biology of the system in, in, in the, in the process of trying to protect yourself from your environment, you, the pain is becoming more personalized, internalized, emotionally embedded in a way. And that, in turn, reorganizes the conscious, you know, cognitive processes of your brain. And so that's essentially the, the, the you know, the, the route that the, a patient is traveling through over time. And, and there's much that we don't know about it. And it's all, in a, many ways, we are excited to be able to find that, those, those concepts and try to then look for solutions for it as well, right? Uh, and that's why it, it's exciting because we think we can make change uh, and we pushing the envelope as fast as possible. But the concept is is straightforward and you know I neither believe nor disbelieve these these concepts. I simply observe them and document them and create the the the, the scientific basis for with which we can move forward uh, in these conditions that yes we have really very little um, scientifically based uh, ways of properly managing them too.
There is, I mean, the, 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 the convincing science of how to manage these conditions remains unproven because we have not had the basic knowledge behind it. It's actually very exciting to me as well to hear even the sense of humility in the excitement about what we don't know, but that what we do know that's so fresh is that it's not imagined. But it's been baked in now to two different systems, as you mentioned. You've got the brain, then you've got the emotional circuitry as well. And to know it can be That's unraveled. That's part of the brain, you know. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, let's talk about that, actually. The heart brain, if you will, maybe, and, uh, and the rest of what we think of as, as the brain. Perhaps give us some examples of what happens with chronic pain and then when it begins to become... Uh, reorganized in the system because of the emotional circuitry. Something I'd love to bring up here uh, that really flows nicely, dovetails with what you were just discussing, is how Vanya first came across some of this evidence. Because prior to, in the early 2000s, people to study chronic pain, they would have someone with chronic pain put uh, some sort of, you know, thermode on them that causes pain and they, you know, put it on their arm and try to make conclusions like, well, because I've put this uh, heat thermode on your your arm and it's causing pain, now I'm studying your chronic pain. And one of the things that Vanya did that was simple but completely revolutionary was he decided to ask people about the pain that they were feeling in their bodies. And Vanya could you, I know that this is a, a simple story, but I think from a, a perspective of normal people who have you know, family members with pain, uh, the idea that Vanya's research is based on the person's self-report, their internal experience of pain, is something that isn't highlighted enough. Mm-hmm. And it really, so in the way it was done, it was so simple. So Vanya, I'd love to... I'd love for you to tell this, this story. This real about acknowledgement. The finger device. Yeah, I can't wait to hear it in this incredible acknowledgement of the subjective becoming so center rather than the objective. Yes, I mean, well, I mean, what our effort was to make the subjective into an objective measurement, right? Uh, and, and as Melissa was saying, you know, the research in the field having the tradition of coming from animal studies where you you provoke uh, uh, by stimulus and then look at its responses in the brain, well, people would, we also started doing it along those lines. But then it was very obvious that we were repeating our silly old animal experiments on humans and that was really, you know, inappropriate. So it was very simple. We, uh, we started asking patients to, to simply use their fingers and, and indicate with their fingers how much pain they had for 10 minutes. And all of a sudden, you can see that people start very happily simply moving. And it's very simple. If your fingers are completely open, you have maximum pain. They're closed. You don't have pain. This was the instruction. And with this simple instruction, people start composing, you know, very complex patterns of their finger movement. The complex pattern, in fact, ends up 
being almost indicative of the type of chronic pain they, they have. And then we use those patterns to actually look for activity in their veins. Okay? Mm-hmm. And that literally gives us a s- subject patient specific you know, signature of what brain areas are actually involved in their perception. So this is their subjectivity, of course, represented in their objective brain circuitry in a way, right? And, and with that simple approach, what we see is that an acute pain patient shows brain areas that have to do with the external environment, with the sensory stimulus. And the same patient a year later, when they do exactly the same, the same rating, now ends up showing all of our brain emotional circuits. Okay, so it's the same person uh, essentially still suffering from the same amount of pain initially started with, a, with, an, with, a, with the brain interpreting that, that, that perception as an external perturbation independent of them, uh, as a somatic representation of the environment kind of thing. And, and that within a year, that moves into all of our brain regions, subcortical regions, that's our own emotional circuitry of our brain, that now are engaged in the condition. So, so this is going to how it is that our brains replicate the experience of the pain when you have something somatically externally that objectively would would cause pain to many people and then is is that what it is that you were were showing in that and then well, over time okay i mean the pain you know is an input to the brain right is a is is a perturbation to the brain right from the nerves that are innervating the tissue and now the brain has to interpret that now, but for a, when you touch a, a burning stove, your interpretation of that is, oh, I'm feeling pain because I know where that pain is coming from. It's that external event that I ended up, you know, being engaged in. But now the pain, in, now that the pain becomes more amorphous, it, it's in time, it's continuing to be there. There is no more obvious stimulus. There is no more obvious external input that you are engaged in. Right, no, no more so hot that, stove. Then there is no more hot stove anymore, right? And yet you are suffering with this. And so, so the brain has to interpret this and has to understand it in a way. And that process of understanding is the only solution to it. It becomes to interpret it as an internal state, this is my pain now. It's not anybody else's, uh, you know, uh, 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 trauma that they're causing me. It's a trauma that I'm living with now. And that since it's mine, it, I have to deal with it with my emotions. There is no other solution kind of thing. And so that's, okay, I'm kind of philosophizing a little bit because I don't want to do that, right? I need to keep to stay with the facts but in a way, that's the conceptual interpretation of how the brain is dealing with these inputs that it needs to, uh, you know, internalize and deal with and survive with it. Right? Otherwise, well, otherwise, the chronic pain patient should crawl into a hole and simply 
not function anymore, right? But in fact, the brain is trying to find solutions to deal with it day in and day out. Yeah. I think it, it sounds like it's really the philosophical uh, basis for what you, Melissa, earlier talked about with the emotional fear learning mm-hmm. and that, that cycle that comes into place. That's my understanding of your, of your work. And I'm wondering if we might continue on that so that um, all of us could understand more clearly what that means for us in application to our everyday lives, that there can be this very real external stimulus. And then over time, it becomes internalized um, and still very real and why that happens and then how we might go about unraveling that. Well, I can, I I mean, pain is a massive learning mechanism, right? We've known it for, since Pavlov, that, you know, a a painful stimulus, we all know. You're speaking of like the Pavlov's dog um, experiments way back many, many decades ago. In a sense, pain becomes a much better learning mechanism for us. We, We want to remember where the pain happens so that we don't injure ourselves again in that environment. So pain is a learning event. So in that sense, when pain becomes persistent, you are learning many things that you should not be learning. And so that's the fear that Melissa is talking about. You, you, you know, and I made this very simple story, I don't know, a mundane story, but basically you walk into your bedroom and your pain happens to be high at the moment. Well, now you have created a negative association between your bedroom and yourself. And, oh, oh! The applications people. are just immense around intimacy, around when you've injured yourself and how you're healing, around a traumatic event in your life with the loss. The the applications for me are just and, like and huge. these learning events are are a lifetime events. Yeah. So it's very hard to unravel or to unpack them in a way, right? But it but so it is possible. And that's of what's course. so hopeful. I mean, and that's the other nice, nice thing. In a way, since this is the emotional circuitry, the emotional circuitry is, in fact, your most tuned circuitry for learning and unlearning at the same time, too. So that's the other half of the coin. Maybe Melissa can, yeah. can elaborate on that, yeah. So in the brain, there's sort of, you can think of it as two different types of emotional reward systems. One is the reward of relief. So there's, you can almost think of it as like a internalized sense of reward is the lack of discomfort. And so whenever we're talking about pain relief, the reward is really neutrality, just not having pain. In, in a sort of acute sense, you could compare this to whenever you need to go to the bathroom. You know, you have the distension in your bowel or in your bladder, and it's uncomfortable. And after you go to the bathroom, then you're relieved. And the relief is neutrality. So what a lot of people with pain are focusing on is I just want relief. I just want to be neutral. However, in the brain, there's an additional uh, type of reward that's oriented toward the external world. And that is action-based, approach-based. In chronic pain, both of these systems are involved. And so this is one of the reasons why uh, a lot of Vanya's work, he talks about the motivational impact of chronic pain and how it impacts not only your feeling of relief within your body, but your willingness to engage in things 
uh, in activities that you used to enjoy that you fear might hurt. I, I can uh, so think of such a great example with Archer, um, since mm-hmm. you've been following along in the podcast. Is so this is way ahead, but he had a pacemaker implanted, and then a, a year later, I had it removed. We had it removed, and it was delicate. Um, and then about three months later, because it takes the body of a quadriplegic so long to heal any type of a wound, so it was still very, very. Um, tender and uh, thin. The skin was just barely beginning to knit itself together again. And uh, unbeknownst to a physical therapist who was doing electrical stim to try and stimulate because he had one muscle group on the top of his shoulder as a, as a C4 quad, they put an electrical currency right where the opening was for the pacemaker Uh-oh. and it blew it open like shrapnel just skin and flesh and it was just it was awful and he's never we are seven years later and he's never healed but what it has caused that's one source of his chronic pain but even when we thought it was getting better through four different pain clinics in the United States it was more the as anyone approached Archer, especially men, they would go to like, you know, hit him on the shoulder, like it's good to see you, or or women would go to like want to hug him or lean in. Mm-hmm. And he, and his whole body was braced for please you know, like stay away from me. And so it became oh. he then became, I I would say, as his mom, you know, just more retracted and isolated, having to protect what then became as large as my fist, a wound. Mm-hmm. Um, a hole in his shoulder that that is still there. It's healing. It's it's smaller now, but still not healed. But that aspect of chronic pain, it's a it's an amazing example, I think, of what you're speaking about. Uh, very Absolutely. real stimulus. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, I would I would hope that he. I'm sure I'm sure he also you've been able to give him soft touch elsewhere in his body that's loving. So one of the things about that is that, oh, then he's not giving or getting physical touch from other people. And that, that physical touch can be so therapeutic in itself, but finding other ways to provide gentle touch that's, it's anticipated, it's predictable, it's soft, it doesn't trigger those emotions. That's, yeah, that's, I'm sure you've you've naturally found that. We have, and it, it has come, in, and possibly this is valuable for the work that you do, that to work with chronic pain has required, I believe, too, and others certainly have written about this, how we heal ourselves through our bodies, but the, the soft, intimate, sweet, kind touch, and I, I don't mean the sexual touch, although for partners it could be, but with a boundary that mm. I, I will I will not go anywhere near this structurally uh, pained area, you know, and to really build that kind of trust for the body. My belief is that the body then rewires itself. Is that true? Is that in your experience, in your research? It reminds me of some of uh, Jan Domenico Ionetti's work on areas of space around the body that become, you could, uh, one way to explain it is um, there are areas of space around the body, the painful body part uh, 
that can take on the value of pain. And I'm not sure if, if that's a proper way to explain it, but how he did this is uh, in this experiment with people with uh, complex regional pain syndrome, which is a type of neuropathic pain that it's exquisitely painful, but it's usually restricted to a single limb. He had them, he blocked their vision because vision is a very important cue uh, with, with many things, but it can uh, enhance pain, for example. He wanted to make sure that that was uh, not a confound in this study. He blocked their vision and he had them switch left and right arms. So these were people, for instance, who had uh, this CRPS pain in only one arm and he had them switch sides and he did sensory testing and uh, temperature testing on the arm whenever it was on the side that it wasn't normally on. And he found that the healthy arm started to take on some of the sensory characteristics of the injured arm whenever it was in that quadrant of space. Just by crossing uh, and, the arms. Mm -hmm. And he's also done some work since then uh, showing that he calls it a peripersonal space. People with high anxiety uh, or greater levels of anxiety feel or perceive threat earlier than people with low anxiety, meaning that if someone has high anxiety and you get into their personal space, their nervous systems will start to respond. Uh, they'll respond to potentially painful stimuli more quickly. So one of the ideas is that the, the space around us is also emotional. And if you have a body area that has a, a history of trauma or pain, that area of your body even around your body, you're very cued into potential threats that might be coming around there. So in a sense, your body doesn't just start with the, with the boundaries of your skin. You're already starting to think about whether something is a threat or not whenever it's a couple of feet away. Yes. And, and, and like you said too, Vanya, if you had had a painful experience and then you walk into your bedroom and your pain uh, threshold of what you've reported is very high... And then, as you said, Melissa, what you take in visually, that's mm -hmm. all getting wrapped into that uh, new circuitry. That yes, and so that ends up being a memory trace yeah. that has the potential of being there for the rest of your life. And that's an emotionally embedded memory trace. And that's completely unconscious because you did not make that decision of feeling that pain when you were walking into that space. And yet that connection was made by your emotional brain circuits. And that, that's the kind of things that really complicates the life of a chronic pain patient mm -hmm. continuously, right? As they experience life and as their pain goes up and down, the, the environment, the people that they are interacting with, and also their bodily states, all of them are, are being conditioned and manipulated in a way uh, in, in, in very, with negative emotional associations. And in a way, even, even walking can, can become abnormal because of, 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 the, of the pain of, of having it in one side, having to, to compensate for it on the other side. And there's a positive part of all of this in a way that since these are learned events, we could unlearn them as well. 
So let's talk about that. These emotionally embedded memory traces um, don't have to doom us, any of us who have experienced uh, pain physically or emotionally for the rest of our lives. That's a message that's really missing out there. I mean, that I should emphasize that because, you know, the clinician who has failed to treat the patient who does not have, you know, the proper treatments, management tools will tell the patient, you just need to live with this for yes. the rest of your life. And that's a terrible thing to say to anybody. It's not true also. No. And Melissa can can elaborate on the not trueness of that. <laughs> yes, let's hear that. And also, maybe Melissa, if you could wrap into that, how physicians are trained to assess or treat Ooh. chronic pain. Yes. Oh yes, that's Ooh. a big one. Yes, yes, yeah. Okay, how about let's start with the more hopeful message. Yes, yes, um, let's do that. Yeah, I yeah. think let's do that. Uh, the more hopeful message is that uh, the, in a sense, the brain is constantly learning. The brain isn't really concerned with what happened five months ago or a few years ago. The brain is concerned with what's happening now. And whenever we're continually queuing into cues about what could be painful, how much this you know hurts currently, um, whether or not we should do something in the next day or next few days based on our pain level, we're reinforcing these learning signals constantly. And what the solution then is, is to look at what types of different cues, what types of different experiences we can provide the brain that change the expectations. So, so in of, other words, the person who wakes up in the morning and plans or decides her entire day based on avoiding the pain, mm-hmm. that is actually in some ways a bit of a reinforcement because it's feeding the, the, the dragon. Absolutely, because... One of the things we've also found in neuroscience research is that even anticipating pain triggers many of the same brain regions as pain itself. So if you're doing something and it causes pain 50% of the time and you're studying closely, okay, I just did this this movement, is it going to cause pain this time? Or I just did some yard work today. Am I going to get a pain flare? And just looking for it, looking for it, looking for it. Oh, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. You're rehearsing for the pain that may come. By focusing on the attention of pain, that itself is how your brain is interpreting that is, oh, the pain is already here. So what we're talking about whenever we're talking about new learning is how can we break these habits because it's it's a habit uh, just like uh, playing the piano is a habit just like juggling is a habit we can create new habits in how we think about pain and how we react to pain whenever it happens yeah habits of mind mm-hmm. and so the challenge then becomes how can you create new experiences that contradict your previous experiences sometimes whenever you're in the middle of a pain flare All you can do is breathe slow and breathe deep. But even that, by calming down your nervous system, it's violating the expectation. Yeah, it's a disruptor. The the breath itself, that pausing is a disruptor. So so even if you're you're in the middle of it and you know it's going to probably last for a few more hours or days or weeks, depending on how long pain flares last, there are still things that you can do to disrupt that process. 
And one of the things that I'm, I'm very interested about uh, whenever it comes to this new learning process is, uh, is how we can use short periods of time to change these pain memories. I'll, I'll talk about this in a couple of layers. On the most superficial layer, uh, there are two periods of learning, two types of learning. One is a period whenever your pain is increasing, and this is maybe a flare period of time. That's not the optimal time for learning new things. That's a time to soothe your nervous system, to breathe deep, to focus on things that you enjoy, to, to rely on the coping strategies that are tried and true. Whatever comfort you can get, however you can self-soothe, that's the approach for that physical state, that state of the nervous system. Whenever pain is reducing or stable, what Vanya's research suggests is that that's the optimal time for trying new things because your brain is open to learning and you're pairing whatever you learn with that pain relief. Oh, creating like new neural pathways that exactly. don't reinforce the pain, but actually create something new. And where that, that in fact can, can cover it up almost, right? <laughs> and in a way, very simply, I mean, the very simple idea is you, you need to celebrate when you don't have pain, uh, when already your pain is going down. You just need to celebrate it, acknowledge it, enjoy it, do things at the time, you know. Uh, and and that's essentially almost a simple fight against the pain itself. And I like to talk about sort of an optimal window. If you have something that happens that is a trigger, either an emotional trigger or a pain trigger, be very careful with your body the next three to four hours afterward. Make sure that you're breathing deep and slow. Make, if you meditate, do that. If you're, you have the opportunity to be around friends and family who you trust, do that. Be very careful in the, the period right after because that has just brought up the pain memory, some of the core uh, sort of trauma or deep emotional, emotional weight of the pain memory. And you have an opportunity during the following few hours to make sure that that pain memory is reconsolidated in a weaker state. Mm. So the most simple way you can do this is to slow deep breathing. Why? Because that reduces your sympathetic arousal and the memory, whenever it's reconsolidated, is less potent than it was before. You can do this as many times. So you can, this can be a slow process of rewiring or some people who like a, who are really, uh, enthusiastic about facing a, a, a phobia related to their pain or the trauma related to their pain, they can do this in big whopping sessions. But those three to four hours after you do that are very important in teaching your brain that it's safe, that you are safe. So that the brain can reconsolidate uh, that, that memory and reconstruct it in a, in a new way. I think of, um, you know, with breath work or even like an Epsom salt bath or with soft, you know, soothing touch, all these different mechanisms mm -hmm. we have at our disposal right here without right in this moment um, in our homes to be able to do that work. So that is what I think you would then say is the first stage, if you will, of soothing and being mm -hmm. very gentle with ourselves three or four hours after uh, triggering painful event, and then whether it's re-triggered through what might even be, I, I'm imagining to myself, talk therapy or anything like that, or massage. 
mm-hmm. that might bring something up to be very, or acupuncture that might bring something up to be very gentle after that. And, and then there's this optimal window of recreating, learning something new. Can you speak more about that? Yeah, I mean, again, my sim- simplistic idea is you should celebrate when you don't have pain or your pain is going down. And literally, I think that's really all all I would assume you would need to do. And um, and in that, in that sense, you know, you then start be- building motivational circuitry and 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 also learning that in fact you can do a lot even uh, in periods of less pain and that will start extending itself over time and that becomes a natural way of you know one dealing with their own uh, state of, of pain and diminishing it over time and it is a, a learning process and it, how much of it is successful in some ways remains unclear. We don't have good data along these lines. There is no, the science is lacking. I mean, sorry, I have to go back to the facts, right? And the science is lacking. And we, we have to do these studies more systematically. But even NIH is cognizant of these things. And they're putting lots of money into these directions of, of doing these studies in a more systematic way where we can actually quantify the success rate of of doing these, you know, multi-dimensional, multi-modal, self self-empowering procedures, and I really don't care whether it's yoga or or meditation or whatever it is that one one needs to do. It's the it's the process of of yeah retraining your brain into into its positive dimensions. That I think, in many ways, the little data that we have shows that it may be far more successful than all the drugs we have out there that we give the patients continuously. And and the data there is very clear. It just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that's the two, you know, coins that that one that we still keep struggling with. Of course, the medical industry wants you to come in and they give you your magic pill and you go home when you're done, right? That's what we all want to happen. Whether we will get there one day or not, I don't know. I have not given hope, up hope. I still, we still do drug trials. We're still testing to see if we are, there are new uh, additional drug ways of, of doing this thing. But even, even on, under those conditions, I think learning the emotional self and how to cope with that, I think immediately would help even with drug treatment as well. So the combination of these things would, would be much better than, than, than either one. But right now, really, this, the only real hope we have is, in fact, self-empowerment of, of, of learning how to, you know. And the good thing is, even in worst cases of chronic pain, there are always episodes of less pain, episodes of minimal pain, there are always comfort zones, and those are all things that one needs to expand into the rest of the consciousness of of your beingness, in a sense. Again, this is mostly philosophy and, and mostly lacking scientific evidence for it, 
but the scientific evidence that we have created is is fully consistent with these ideas. Mm. So while the scientific evidence evidence is not all there and we have a long way to go, it's consistent with even the the portal for this new learning opportunity being to celebrate uh, when pain has changed and around self-empowerment and joy. Um, and that yeah. that's very hopeful. And but but it doesn't um, it, it doesn't change overnight. Um, the you have said before that the power of medicine to relieve pain still remains woefully inadequate, um, and it's not yeah. changing that overnight. And I know Melissa, you've got uh, some thoughts to share with us yeah. about that. And if 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 you look, okay, what would this look like? What does it look like to celebrate? Think about building moments. Because the now moment is all we have. Then you have this moment, then you have this moment, right? Whenever you feel relief, whenever it occurs to you, wow, I feel better than I felt before, or you're doing something, you're, you're able to go out and take a trip in the car and you're feeling the sun on your skin. These are things that we may normally notice, but we don't pay attention to. The way to build up this type of learning, this type of celebratory learning, is to take a moment whenever that happens, whenever you notice that things feel good, and to really savor it. Because what this learning means is building up more and more moments like that. Because the more really strongly salient moments that you build, that's what is helping your brain learn this new way of living. I love that. Um, Pain, close attention, and savoring those salient moments. Uh, The sun on our skin, uh, the softness of a touch, uh, uh, so many aspects of our lives that can move us uh, around beauty that can alleviate in that moment. Another note along those lines is that, in fact, I mean, our research does show that people with chronic pain are attempting to do this actively. And in a sense, this is their effort of, you know, coping and getting over the the situation. So in a a very simply, for example, we were completely surprised when we look at the personality of chronic pain patients. Their uh, personality is more um, positive. Than optimistic. The, they're more optimistic. They are more driven to go and get it in a way, to change the way they are. One expects that the chronic, I mean, chronic pain patients do tend to be, of course, more depressed, higher anxiety and all of that. But at the same time, they're also more optimistic. Okay, so, Interesting, uh, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And, and that's the biology of survival in a way also, right? It's also actually the recipe of integration uh, for trauma healing, that it is both, that we learn, we learn to live with both side by side, you know, both sides of that coin. Um, And we begin to increase one side and you're giving us wonderful methods uh, gently and they're, they're powerful. And the science Mm -hmm. might be catching up with that, but the science that is out there, um, scant as it is, but growing does reinforce yeah. this concept. This is not just, sure. you know, yeah. willy-nilly um, yeah. imaginative yeah. thinking. 
Yeah. And I'd like to bring this back to the question about physicians. Uh, there are some studies showing that physicians in North America, uh, in medical school, they get four to 11 hours of pain education. So that's the standard doctor. And that's primarily focused on how normal pain works and how to treat uh, post-surgical pain with opioids. That's what they're educated in. So unless they seek out additional education, they don't understand chronic pain. So there's also a message I, I hope that listeners take is you have the power in your brain by using some of these, these methods and using this understanding to help yourself in a way that physicians are absolutely unable to help you with. And, and to follow your instincts coming back to another aspect of self-empowerment to challenge, it doesn't have to be adversarial, to challenge what the physician may not know and to educate him or her. If they have the time to talk to you. <laughs> well, you can also a bit demand that time to talk. Um, I, I do believe yeah. that physicians will, do want to. Um, of course, you know they go. They of get course. into medical school to save lives and and um, you know and heal they suffering. Very hard to get there, and they absolutely you know the vast majority of them want to do good. Yes, how much opportunity are they given to be able to do that becomes part of the problem. Also, right? I mean, our system is stressed out. The whole health system is stressed, and 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 within that, I think. Chronic pain patients are one example of, you know, not being properly treated. Yes, I'd say we've really kind of left our chronic pain patients high and dry if the only uh, avenue that was learned in medical school and therefore is applied is an opioid uh, or some type of pharma pharma, um, intervention. What other, um, and, and also just by way of analogy, it's even less hours in medical school that physicians learn anything about spinal cord injury um so no, um, of course yeah, of I'm course sure. right so when people yeah. show up with something that's well, one of the most complicated lecture, of injuries in a, in a lecture by somebody for for a minute or two probably is all they get yes it. precisely yeah yeah, yeah. And, and enormously complicated like like chronic pain so I, i'm wondering um if as it relates to conventional pain treatments that you've just mentioned, Vanya and and Melissa, you're also educating us about the woeful lack of education in medical school for physicians. Why don't opioids work as as the main treatment for chronic pain? Okay, well, I'm really busy right now trying to write a $10 million grant proposal specifically on this question that, that's due in a few weeks. So I can start reading from my grant proposals to you, but I will not do that. <laughs> Instead, I will say very simply, I mean, everything that we have said so far about the pain becoming an emotional state, that emotional state is exactly where the opiate system is also working. So in a sense, in a very simple way, in some some of my research or or lectures, one way that we characterize chronic pain is that the brain becomes addicted to this negative signal that's coming to the brain. And the system where this addiction is happening, the emotional system, is where opiates are working. So in a, in a sense, it's almost like the worst drug we can give these 
patients on chronic pain is, is to give them opiates because it is simply reinforcing the circuitry that's already has become addicted and it will reinforce the addiction mechanisms of the brain. And, it, and in a way, pain becomes an additional stressor of addiction with opiates. And over the long term, not only it's not working, it's making the addiction worse. The addiction potential worse. I don't mean the addiction necessarily, right? Uh, and even if people, I mean, and we have the data I have, the, we, we're publishing these papers, in, even in patients who have been on opiates for long term, for long periods of time, who don't have obvious signs of addiction, their, you know, circuitry is massively reorganized. Okay, and and so untangling that is a, is going to be very complicated, and that's that's the ten million dollar grant that I need to be funded immediately. <laughs> uh, well, I can't wait to talk with you once it's funded, and even in the course uh, in between now and then, it's really a big wow to mm. think about what you've just proposed, Vanya, that the yeah, only well, mechanism that's relied upon, well, or the primary treatment that's relied upon by physicians is an opioid and it, it, that runs along this system, the same system that yeah. pain becomes addicted to and the opioid causes addiction, so it's actually exacerbating chronic pain yeah. is, is very but, powerful. You know, but again, I mean, uh, it, one can see it, how it happens. You know, the first time you get your opiate, you get a whopping pain relief, right? The second time that relief is less, in a, in, in a few months, it's not clear if it's doing anything, in fact. Uh, in, I mean, the, the huge uh, meta-analysis of the efficacy of, of, of opiates in chronic pain is is abysmal. It, it, long-term opiates don't show any efficacy in chronic pain patients. Yet, patients are taking them. They're taking them for years. They cannot stop taking them. So, and of course, that's the source of overdose and opiate epidemic. You know, 100,000 people have died from opiates last year. The, the primary source of that is, in fact, the healthcare system providing these drugs to people. And that's a, a terrible story. And opioids are also given at a time in that very complicated situation, at a time when people are at their weakest because they're oftentimes not only in incredible pain, they're fearful, they're frightened about the future. They don't mm -hmm. understand what's happening to their bodies if it's been an accident or some other kind of traumatic event. And so it, it's hard to say if there's even informed consent. Um, if you're asking me, the mediator, uh, yeah. with someone actually. But, but it's also yes mutual. I mean, the, the physician also is, is not to be blamed that much either because they see an immediate effect. They have nothing else to give the patient. The only guys, they haven't been taught anything else. And the patient wants something and they need to give them something also. So it is a. Uh, you know, uh, uh, that's why it's urgent for us to understand the science of all of this, to 
understand both the science of opiates and the science of the chronic pain and how they interact. This is this is, you know, uh, what we have been funded for this over the last five years with a ten million dollar grant. We need another ten million dollar grant. Yeah. We there's a lot of work to be done here, and it's not simple. It's it's complicated. And in the process, yes, I'm hopeful that we will find alternatives that are much more useful and, in fact, show that, that the alternatives work. You know, you can have the solution or wisdom uh, for someone else, but if you can't speak their language, you know, yes. they, they can't hear it. And so I think all of the learnings outside traditional medical school, um, including integrative health wisdom and healing insights and understandings and practices that have been ancient as well as new practices we will have to either become the mediator and interpret or find the language which is through the research as you are doing Vanya and Melissa and the grant that you're writing so that mm -hmm. the medical profession can can hear it because the language is being spoken um, it's the same yeah. language yeah in the meantime as a patient if uh, your healthcare provider or doctor is, if you know that something works for you and they challenge you and they don't believe you, be compassionate and understand that they're ignorant. Yes, because if you know that something works for your body, that's your truth. You, you don't need external validation for your own truth. Yeah. You know, just to shore that up, and for others, and especially for um, so many people in the medical profession whom I uh, adore and love and have relied upon, mm -hmm. that this it can be a more compassionate response for what, what they don't know, uh, but also an, an opportunity for the patient, for each of us, to be advocates for ourselves and to highlight for the medical practitioner that when they undermine or dismiss what the patient has said, that that does still carry so much weight and power. And if the profession could simply adopt where you both started, and Vanya, you said it, we don't know. If that, so it would just be amazing as opposed to there's nothing we can do, you're going to have to live with it. It, rather than, you know, yeah. you've got some methods, trust those methods. There's so much we don't know. That yeah. is a hopeful statement that our medical friends might consider adopting. Yeah. I'm yeah. wondering, Melissa, um, I, hmm. I would like to, to listen to you all a little bit more about the, the neuroscience that exists now around chronic pain. There are not that many chronic pain scientists, neuroscientists. There aren't that many. The peop uh, so how many would you say, like Vanya, like 200 generously? The neuroscience of pain, it's, it's being pushed forward by a small group of people who are very dedicated to it. What is missing is opportunities to communicate that information with physicians and clinicians and especially with patients, people who are living with pain day to day. What would be better is if we had more people working on this. And, and right now, given, 
given how the academic system is is uh, has evolved, that's that's unlikely to take that that'll take years for more people to be working on this. So in the meantime, what I think sort of the status of neuroscience uh, research on on pain is is it exists in a different sphere that isn't successfully percolating down to people who need to use it. And um, that's, it's a communication issue. It's a translation issue. How is the information being passed on? How is it being discussed? Who are we, who are we relying on? So for example, I'm a, I love physical therapists because they're very, in the past five years, especially, there's a huge number of them that have put it on themselves to try to understand pain neuroscience and they're competitive in this way. They have great personalities and it's sort of like a, who can be the better, you know, uh, a pain scientist in a conversation about it. But what they're doing is they're really expanding uh, their knowledge that they're applying to their patients. What I think, I think we need to go another step. And I, in a way, I think that many people with pain are already ready for this because whenever you live with chronic pain for years, you do become an expert. You read a lot of stuff on Google searches. Yes, you read some false information, but you're reading through it. It's a discernment process that you're going through. And what I see as the issue is that a lot of people who have been through these really long pain journeys, they've adopted the biomedical rhetoric in order to argue back with their physicians, no, I'm deserving of care. So then what's happened is the word psychosomatic and brain brain based pain has become a very controversial field where if i admit that my brain has an impact on my pain then i'm saying it's not real so people have learned to survive in a medical system by adopting the traumatizing rhetoric and so what i i feel is most needed with neuroscience of pain is for the information to be accessible to people who need it to have pain today. And that that's one of the reasons why we wanted to have this conversation today, so that people can know what knowledge exists, what science exists, to where even if it isn't accessible through their doctors, their primary doctors or their pain physicians, they can have that knowledge to move forward with their healing journey, even if it hasn't made its way into the standard medical system yet. Well, I'm so glad that you all reached out because there will be um, many thousands and thousands, um, many, many of, of listeners who can benefit from you and your work. And, mm-hmm. and I know that there are 50 million plus Americans um, North Americans living with chronic pain. And perhaps we could close with my asking you both, how can a person living with, with pain, any pain, I think chronic is defined by you know, three months or more, if I recall correctly. Yeah. How might a person who's living with pain use the information that they have learned today in this podcast to ease their own pain? One of the best things I think that you can do with this knowledge that we've just discussed is uh, to cultivate a compassionate attitude toward your body. 
Um, because if these memories are are bound to different areas of your body, uh, you know, memories related to a knee injury or to a spinal cord injury or to uh, a really stressful period in your life, the healing will require that memories related to those events comes up. And memories and emotions just need to be experienced. They don't need to be judged. Whenever they're experienced, they can be released. And it won't be easy. None of this is easy. But whenever it's experienced with a compassionate self-view, um, that's, that's, the, that's the most potent way to move through some of these things. So, you know, whenever I'm, I'm talking to people about, you know, in those hours after a pain flare has, has really peaked, what types of things should they think about? What types of uh, experiences should they build for themselves? Self-compassion. And that's uh, hard for a lot of us to learn. And it's, it's not uh, taught to us in our society. And um, if you need a crash course in, in compassion, imagine that the pain is a baby that you're holding in your arms. How would you comfort that child? So there are lots of different ways from a psychological perspective that you can think about healing these memories and healing the feelings in your body. Uh, what that positive emotion of compassion also does is it provides an alternative learning signal where in the process of feeling a very negative emotion, you're adding a positive emotion on top of it. And the brain pays a lot of attention to things like that whenever that happens. That doesn't happen very often. So that's also a way to sort of, it's, it's called a contradictory cue in neuroscience uh, uh, talk. But what you're doing is you're helping your, pain, or your brain to pay attention to um, the periods whenever you can neutralize those emotions related to the pain. So uh, working with the emotions will be part of the pain journey. And it isn't something to be feared of. It's part of it. And that can be done in a loving way, or you can, it can be done in a resistance-filled way. And the loving way will help it resolve more quickly. Thank you. I think about the power of the intentionality of the practitioner then also working with the person who has described her pain or his pain and taking that um, compassionate, loving approach that there's nothing more important in that moment than in receiving and caring for that patient. Uh, we all go back, so many of our uh, jarring experiences around trauma in our lives um, can, can be healed. And as we think of ourselves as the babies and the young children and, um, and caring for each other at a very deep level that certainly rewires the brain. And how powerful and hopeful that is and what we can do for ourselves and request or seek out in, in a practitioner. Beautiful. Thank you both so much. Thank you so much for yeah. having us on. Well, thanks. Thanks for also even doing these things yourself. So it's, it's, all, it's all good for, for us, society in general. Yeah, that's great. Are you going to try a practice that was discussed today? Let us know by engaging on Blink of an Eye social media. Find us at Blink of an Eye Podcast on Instagram and under the name Blink of an Eye Podcast.
on Facebook. We all have pain, and we may be increasing our risks for future chronic pain. I hope you have been inspired today, and I hope you care for yourself so you can care for others. Be well. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. Love heals trauma. Thank you for tuning in to the Trauma Healing Learnings. You may tune in to the companion Blink of an Eye story at Season 3, Episode 16, Margaritas for Trauma Healing. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and following. And thank you for telling your friends about Blink of an Eye podcast. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to Blink of an Eye on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. For 28 years, Baltimore Mediation has served clients worldwide by facilitating negotiation breakthroughs, believing in their capacity for meaningful face-to-face dialogue. You can learn more at baltimoremediation.com.